0: If you have a Bible, uh, you can open it to Hebrews chapter number 10. Hebrews chapter number 10. I think today, if you're reading at the same pace that I am, I read Hebrews 11. Um, That may not be correct, but that's where I was uh, this morning. And so for the past uh, two weeks, I guess, or so, we've been reading uh, the letter... Uh, to the Hebrews. And so uh, anyone who might be new or it's your first time in a a long time here on Wednesday nights, we take our Bible reading plan that we've put out as a church. It's called the F260 New Testament plan. We've been reading through the New Testament together for those who have chosen to do so. And then every week, depending on where we are uh, in our readings of the New Testament, we just kind of choose one of those and we spend a few moments uh, together, or maybe more than a few moments uh, together discussing some of those things from scripture. Uh, Last week, we looked at some passages from Hebrews chapter 5 and chapter 6. Felt like when I left, I uh, made everybody's brain hurt. So I promised tonight uh, that I would do a little better and uh, not keep you here uh, until the kids are all waiting and banging down at the glass doors out there. So I'll do better, uh, I promise. But anyway, uh, we are in Hebrews chapter 10 tonight. One of my most favorite um, passages of scripture, uh, is what we're going to be reading, um, in Hebrews chapter 10. So, uh, find that with me and we'll, we'll jump in there in just a little bit. I, uh, I read an interesting story just a few days ago. I'd never really heard much about this, but I was talking to our office staff about it, and apparently everybody has heard about it except for me, so maybe I'm just not very cultured. But anyway, uh, have you ever heard about the uh, kissing the stone at the Blarney Castle in Ireland? Has anybody heard of this uh, tradition? Is that a super normal thing? Am I the only person who didn't even know how to say Blarney? Is that even right? Okay, thank you. I was hoping it would be like, no, it's Blarney. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, I was, I was reading about that particular tradition. In fact, one of, one of the things that I heard is that you're actually supposed to kiss it upside down. Anybody confirm this or deny it? Has anyone done this? I mean, someone in the world has, but has anyone in this room done that? All right. Anyway, just wondering. I thought that was kind of interesting. Anyway, here's the, here's the story that I read. This is why I'm bringing up uh, the, the Blarney Castle. There was a guide who worked at the Blarney Castle, and he was explaining to some visitors that his job was not always as pleasant as it seemed. I mean, he's at this resort-type area, you know, a tourist attraction, but it's not always, you know, the best day of his life. He was telling them about a, about a group of disgruntled tourists that had, uh, he had taken to the castle earlier that week and given a tour. He said, these people were complaining about everything, he said. They didn't like the weather, they didn't like the food, they didn't like their hotel accommodations, the prices, everything. There was nothing that would make them happy. Everything uh, Everything was bothering them. Then to top it off, when we arrived at the castle and I began the tour, we found that the area around the Blarney Stone was roped off. Workmen were making some kind of repairs, and so they could not get to the stone in order to, you know, participate in the tradition. And so one lady, who apparently had seemed to uh, be the chief fault finder in the group, she said, This is the last straw. Like, I've, I've had it up to here. I've come all this way, and now I can't even kiss the Blarney stone. Well, you know, the guide said, According to legend, if you kiss someone who has kissed the stone, it's the same as kissing the stone itself. And I suppose, the woman said, I suppose you've kissed the stone. He said, better than that. This was a guide. I've sat on it. (laughs) i am be honest, I didn't know if I could use a phrase like that in our time together tonight if you don 't get it it 'll happen in a minute. so just let it let it settle in now listen i, I know it 's a dumb story. it's probably not even true. I I just, I I read this story, thought it was funny. But here's what it, here's what it did make me think about. It made me think about how often I complain about things. Now I may have told you this before, but just by nature, I am a whiner. I, I, I don't mean it. I think it's just now become a habit. If you'll just let me get it out of my system for the first few minutes of whatever I don't like, I promise it'll go away. I'm just a whiner by nature. Matter of fact, I've seen this even more. It's been highlighted since my kids have been born. Because I've seen them and heard them and watched them whine about everything possible in life. They've been like a mirror to my own life. As a matter of fact, I don't know if y'all have ever seen The Greatest Showman. Anybody in the room seen The Greatest Showman? I'm not alone, am I? There's a song in the show that whatever the girl is that sings it that he tours with to, you know, become famous or whatever. It's a a song that she sings. It's titled Never Enough. You may have sang it in your car as you listen to the soundtrack. I mean, not me. I would never do that. It's weird, but maybe you do. Never Enough is the song she sings. At my house house, that's become the joke for my children. Because what we have on TV is never enough. What we eat out at is never enough. What we have for dinner that night is never enough. The trip we take is never enough. Like everything we do in life, it does not matter. I just begin singing that song once again. It's never enough, right? How often do we complain about the things In our life. Now, think about this in the context of the American church, because this is where Hebrews chapter 10 was leading me to. I was thinking about my own whining, which is normal, right? I was thinking about my own complaining. And then I started thinking about this in the context of Western American church. How much do people complain in the church? Now, listen, we won't hash that out tonight, but if we could. There are tons of complaints that come from the church or about the church or with that church or with this church complaining and whining all the time inside the church. How often... How often do we focus on negative things rather than what God has blessed us with through a relationship with him and others in the local body of believers? How much do we focus on the negative rather than all the things that God is doing and working here in our church and another churches? In fact, you ever heard the story about Henry Jones? Of course you haven't because I just found it. This is a story about Henry Jones. It says, one Sunday morning, Henry Jones awoke to find his wife standing over him, shaking him by the shoulder. You have to get up, she urged. We have to get ready for church. I don't want to go to church, he replied. I want to stay in bed. Crossing her arms over her chest, his wife demanded, give me three good reasons why you should stay in bed and not go to church. Okay, said the man. First, I don't get anything out of the service. Second, I don't like the people there. And third, no one there likes me. Now, the man said back to his wife, can you give me three reasons why I should go to church? His wife responded, first, it will do you some good. Second, there are people there who actually like you. And third, you have to go. You're the pastor. Get up and get dressed. Now listen, better than that example, the writer of Hebrews explains some of our blessings through Jesus. He gives us several reasons why we have zero reason to complain. I want to show you those very quickly tonight. They're one of my favorite passages of scripture in Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19. Let's read In that spot together. You ready? Hebrews 10, 19. Here's what the writer of Hebrews wrote. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near... With a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let me give you the first reason that I think complaining shouldn't happen. All these are in the form of a question. How can we complain when we remember the communion we have through Jesus? Right? How can we complain when we remember the communion we have through Jesus? Now, one of my favorite commentary writers, his name is John Phillips, he gives an interesting illustration to help us understand what the writer of Hebrews is communicating in these verses. There's a lot to unpack in verses 19 through 22. But I want to give you a picture that may bring it all together as you listen to this interaction from a non-Jew and a Jew. Now listen to this account that he gives. Imagine, he says picture, to picture these verses, imagine a Moabite of old gazing down upon the tents and tabernacle of Israel from some lofty mountain height. Attracted by what he sees, he descends to the plain and makes his way toward the sacred enclosure surrounding the tabernacle. It is a high wall of dazzling linen which reaches over his head he walks around it until he comes to the gate where he sees a man may I go in there he asked pointing through the gate to where the bustle of activity in the tabernacle's outer court can be seen who are you demands the man suspiciously any Israelite would know that he could go in there I am a man from Moab the stranger replies well says the man at the gate I'm very sorry but you cannot go in there it's not for you The law of Moses has barred the Moabite from any part in the worship of Israel until his 10th generation. The Moab looks sad. What would I have to do to go in there? He insists. You would have to be born again, replies the gatekeeper. Multiple generations, by the way. You would have to be born an Israelite. You would need to be born of the tribe of Judah, perhaps, or the tribe of Benjamin or of Dan. You would have to be born again. You can't go in. I wish I had been born an Israelite of one of the tribes of Israel, the Moabite says. As he looks more closely, he sees one of the priests having offered a sacrifice at the brazen altar and cleansed himself at the uh, brazen sink. Go on into the tabernacle's interior. What's in there? Ask the Moabite inside the main building. I mean, oh, says the gatekeeper, that's the tabernacle itself inside there is a room containing a lampstand a table and an altar of gold the man you saw is a priest he will trim the lamp eat of the bread upon the table and burn incense to the living god upon the golden altar ah sighs the man of moab i wish i were an israelite so that i could do that i should love to worship god in that holy place and help to trim the lamp to offer him some incense and to eat at that table oh no says the man at the gate even I could not do that to worship in the holy place one must not only have been born an Israelite one must be born of the tribe of Levi and of the family of Aaron well the man from Moab sighs again I wish he says that I had been born of Israel of the tribe of Levi of the family of Aaron gazing wistfully at the closed tabernacle door he says what else is in there Well, there's a veil, replies the informant, the gatekeeper. It's a beautiful veil, I'm told, which divides the tabernacle in two. Beyond the veil is what we call the most holy place, the holy of holies. The Moabite is more interested than ever. What's in the holy of holies, he asks. Well, there's a sacred chest in there called the Ark of the Covenant, answers the gatekeeper. It contains certain holy memorials of our past. Its top is made of gold, and we call that the mercy seat because God sits there between the gold and cherubim. You see that pillar of cloud hovering over the tabernacle? That's the Shekinah glory cloud. It comes to rest on the mercy seat. Again, a look of longing shadows the face of the man from Moab. Oh, he says... If only I were a priest, I should love to go into the Holy of Holies and there gaze upon God and worship him there in that beauty of holiness. Oh, no, says the man at the gate. You couldn't do that even if you were a priest. To enter into the most holy place, you would have to be the high priest of Israel. And even if you were the high priest of Israel, only then could you go in there one time. Nobody else, only he. The Moabite's heart yearns once more. Oh, he cries. If only I had been born an Israelite of the tribe of Levi, of the family of Aaron. If only I had been born the high priest, I would go in there into the Holy of Holies. I would go in there every day. I would go in three times a day. I would worship continually in the Holy of Holies. The gatekeeper looks at him again once more, shakes his head. Oh, no, he says, you couldn't do that. Even the high priest of Israel can go in there only once a year. And then, after the most elaborate of preparations, and even then, only for a little while. Sadly, the Moabite turns away. He has no hope in all the world of ever entering there into the presence of God. Say, so Danny, why'd you read that interaction? Because imagine before this moment in Hebrews chapter 10, all they knew was this all they knew was this was the only way that you could have access to God. The writer of Hebrews expresses this all throughout his letter. In Hebrews chapter 9, he says, for a tent was prepared, the first section in which there was a lampstand and a table and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. He goes on in Hebrews 9, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes and he, but once a year and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. It goes on, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He says in Hebrews 10, for since the law has been but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it could never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. But all this changed when Jesus came. Here's what it says in Hebrews 10. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And by that, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Hebrews ten eighteen. Right before this, listen. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Friends, can I just just highlight something? What was once so foreign and distant and cold and unthinkable, we now have access to right here in this place what we could have never imagined being able to see, we can now commune with God every single day, every single moment. We don't have to be about like the Moabite who said, man, I'd go in there three days and worship. Oh no, you can't do that. You're not allowed. Friends, we can go always before the throne of God to worship him. How can we complain when we remember the communion we have through Jesus? Now that communion is seen in several ways in these verses. One, we have communion because of the sacrifice of Jesus that's what the writer of Hebrews is building up up until this moment this is what he says in Hebrews ten twenty: by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh now this idea the curtain the writer of Hebrews is referencing is the temple veil The veil separated man from God. It served as a barrier to protect sinful man from a holy God. There are plenty of moments throughout the Old Testament where men died because they were in the presence of God's holiness and were not prepared. Jesus was a representation of that barrier. The only way to get to God was to be perfect like Christ. We never could. We could never enter the presence of God because we weren't like Jesus. However, the veil was torn in two. When Jesus died on the cross, he broke the barrier between us and God. Here's how Matthew put it and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and a way was made for you and me. Listen to what Raymond Brown said. He said, just as the Heavy temple curtain was torn from top to bottom on that first Good Friday, so that pure and spotless body of Christ was rent for us, just as the veil was torn and broken, so was jesus body for you and me. He shed his blood that the approach to God might not be barred as in earlier centuries, but open all, we have communion because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Also, we have communion because of the service of Jesus. Look at verse 21. Look back at it. And since we have a great priest, high priest, over the house of God, Jesus has become our perfect high priest. He serves in a way that no high priest ever could. We are no longer to offer sacrifices over and over and over. No, through Jesus We have access to God forever through his service that never ends and never runs out. He presents us before God as perfect. Not only did he present himself as a sacrifice, but he serves to present us as perfect before God. I love the phrase that the writer uses, the phrase house of God. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Now listen, this phrase has been used to refer to several different things. It's been used to describe the people of Israel. It's been used to describe the temple. It's been used to describe the church and community of believers. But it's also been used to describe the individual believer who is the temple of God. You know what this is referring to us, what the writer is communicating for every person who follows after Jesus because of his sacrifice, because of his service? Jesus isn't just the greatest high priest. He's not just one of many. He's not just the best one out there. He's More than that, he's my great high priest. He's over the house of God, not simply just a group of people or a building where God dwelt. He's over me as I am individually a temple for God. Here's how Paul put it to the church at Corinth. He said, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? You know what he's saying? Your body is a house of God. He says, so glorify God in your body. How can we complain when we remember the communion we have through Jesus? Because of his sacrifice, because of his service. Ultimately, we have communion with God because of the salvation of Jesus. Look back at verse 22. It's the first moment that draws us in. He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. How? How can we draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith? Well, look at it. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What's the writer saying? He's talking about Jesus, the sacrifice that cleanses us from all sin. His sacrifice and service mean nothing if we haven't received salvation through him. Have you placed your faith in Jesus? Have you had your heart sprinkled clean? Have you've been washed with pure water. How can we complain when we remember the communion we have through Jesus? Let me show you this one too, though. Another question to think about how we really have zero reasons to complain. How can we complain when we remember the confession we have through Jesus? How can we complain when we remember the confession we have through Jesus? Look at verse 23, Hebrews 10. Let's move on. You ready? I love this moment. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now, I want to take a moment here because the word for hold fast means to prevent someone from doing something by restraining or hindering. Now, there are two things that popped in my mind as I reflected on this word, to hold something back. I thought about the phrase recited in my marriage vows. Here was the phrase that we recited. To have and to hold from this day forward. Many of you made that same statement. When we make the decision to commit our lives to another person, we're committing to holding on to that relationship with it forever, without letting go. Not holding on to any other relationship, but holding and clinging to that one. That one is it. We hold fast to one another. The second thing that this word made me think about was imagine someone that you love dearly falling off a cliff or a building. That would be a little strange. I agree, and I'm sorry that you're imagining it now that I hear this phrase said out loud. But imagine for a second, or picture a movie scene where you've seen this take place. As they're falling, you grab a hold of their hand. The only thing keeping them from falling to their death Is you holding on to them? This is what the writer of Hebrews means when he says, hold fast the confession of our hope. To hold in a way that never lets go. To cling to the hope that we have in Jesus. Cling to the truth, the reality that you belong to something so much bigger than you could have ever imagined. You're a child of the King. Hold fast to that confession that could only be provided through Jesus. Now I also want to highlight something else here in this moment. And that's the word confession. The word confession means more than simply a statement. The word means to express openly one's allegiance to a proposition or a person. This is different from what many people in churches are like today. This is different from what many people who claim to follow Jesus display. As a matter of fact, I read a story this week that was told about a guy who came to church with his family. And as they were driving home afterwards, he was complaining about everything that happened at church. He said the music was too loud, the sermon was too long, the announcements were unclear, the building was hot, the people were unfriendly. He went on and on and on, complaining about virtually everything. Finally, his very observant son said, Dad, you've got to admit, it wasn't a bad show for just a dollar. <laughs> I thought about this guy, silly story, I know. But I thought about that level of commitment, that level of clinging to the confession that we have in Jesus. If we give nothing to it, why could we ever expect to get anything out of it? I thought about this guy. Like many people who attend a church or are associated with a church, This is not what the writer of Hebrews is talking about when he uses the word confession. He's writing about more than attendance. He's writing about more than association. He's writing about allegiance. He's writing about clinging to Jesus. I love what one commentator wrote about this verse. He said, the author probably had in mind a confession with both words and actions. With a strong confidence in the superior priesthood of Christ, we can continue to confess him with our mouths and continue to emulate him with our lives, serving as his representatives in a world that desperately needs to see Christ in us. Confession is more than association. It's it's certainly more than attendance. It's about allegiance. Us lying up with Jesus, holding fast to him. Jesus, where you go, I go. Don't miss the last statement the writer of Hebrews makes in this verse. He says, he who promised is faithful. Jesus who provided this confession this allegiance that we now have is faithful to continue to work out his plan in us this is why Paul said to the church at Philippi I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ now listen to me that doesn't mean it goes without doesn't mean it goes without anything it doesn't mean there won't be ups and downs. In fact, when it comes to our confession in Jesus, I want to point out a couple of things to you. One, he convicts us when we need it. There are so many passages of scripture throughout the New Testament. Even the Holy Spirit himself is said to be sent in order to convict the world of sin. Friends, he's doing that to us daily, calling out what needs to be called out convicting us of the sin that we so desperately hide from him that he wants to cleanse us of and wash us of. He challenges us when we need it. Right? That's what allegiance looks like. We're go, Jesus, where you go, I go. If that means you got to tear something in me because you want to get it out, Jesus, I'm there with you. I'm clinging to you above anything else that I have. So convict me where I need it. Challenge me where I need it. I might not have been willing to go. I might not have been willing to do. I might not have been willing to step out. But Jesus, challenge me. I'm clinging to you. I'm holding fast to my confession. I said I gave my life to you. Jesus, challenge me to live that way. You are faithful even when I am not. He also changes us when we need it, right? Oh man, so many things that happen that change in us as Jesus grows us more. I love what Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus when he said, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love what he wrote to a young pastor by the name of Timothy when he talked about the leadership of God through his word. He said, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Friends, that's us. Hold fast. To our confession, so that the Lord can convict and challenge and change and make us into the people He wants us to be. How can a Christian complain when they remember their communion with God? We were once far away and now we are brought near. How can a Christian complain when they remember their confession in God? Everything has changed. We are dead so that Christ can live. But let me show you this last one. How can we complain? when we remember the community we have through Jesus. Certainly the communion, certainly the confession, but oh, friends, don't forget the community that we have through Jesus. Look at Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Listen, this is a community that stirs up I love it, stirs up. My parents used to tell me I would stir things up a lot. I don't think they meant it the same way that the writer of Hebrews meant it. Consider how to stir up one another. We have a community that pushes us to be more than we could ever be alone. We have a community that wants to cause everyone to serve Jesus more. One writer illustrated it uh, like this. He talked about growing up In Britain, when he was a kid, he said, most of the houses where I grew up were not centrally heated. Instead, each room had its own small fireplace. He said, I well remember the good fire that was always kept burning in the fireplace of the living room whenever the weather was inclement and cold. The coals would be heated up and the flames would roar up the chimney. Occasionally, we would take an iron poker and stir up the coals so that the air could circulate and the fire stay alive and hot. He said once in a while, a coal would fall down, roll off to one side, and when it first fell, it would be bright red and glowing with the fire, but after a short while, a very short while, the isolated coal would lose some of its luster. The glow would fade, and it would look dull and listless. Soon it became black with just a whisper or two of smoke ascending from it as evident evidence of its former heat until presently it was cold enough to be picked up by hand Man, I wonder if there's some people in here in this room tonight who go, Man, I feel like that coal that's burnt out, right? I feel like that coal that no longer has any fire. Well, this is exactly what happens to followers of Jesus without the community he provided. They lose their fire. They become cold. They become useless. But that's not us. May we never forget the community that we have through Jesus, a community that stirs us to be better, a community that not just stirs up, but a community that shows up, This is why he says in verse 25, not neglecting to meet together, right? Whether it's Sunday morning worship gatherings or midweek Bible studies or youth group or children's ministry or senior adults or men's and women's ministry or Sunday school classes or small groups, we need a community that shows up. Sometimes that just means at 2 a.m. when I'm desperate for somebody because I can't make it on my own. We need a community that shows up. We need people who stand by our side. That's the community we have through Jesus. We need a community that speaks up. That's why the writer says, encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Listen, we know what's happening in our world. We could sit around these tables for several minutes complaining about the chaos that is our world and our country. It's harder and harder to follow after Jesus. We need each other more now than ever for encouragement and accountability. Think about this. Who needs you? To speak up on their behalf. Who has God placed in your life. That you should be speaking up to. Or stirring up. Or showing up for. We are better together. So. How can we complain. When we remember the communion we have through Jesus. How can we complain. When we remember the confession we have through Jesus. How can we complain. When we remember the community. We have through Jesus. Listen if you think it's rough. I read another story this week. It's <laughs> a lot of stories this week, right? <laughs> it was about a man who was driving down a dirt road. He had his dog riding in the back of his pickup truck, and he had his faithful horse in the trailer behind him, and he was going on his way until he got to a big curve that he failed to navigate and had a terrible, terrible accident. Sometime later, a highway patrol officer came up on the scene. He was an animal lover, and he saw the horse first. Realizing the serious nature of its injuries, he drew his gun, and he put the animal out of his misery. He walked around the accident and found the dog, also hurt critically. He couldn't bear to hear it whine in pain, so he ended the dog's suffering as well as he did the horse. Finally, he located the man who suffered multiple fractures off in the weeds. Hey, are you okay? The cop asked. The cowboy took one look at the smoking pistol in the trooper's hand and quickly replied, Never felt better, officer. (laughs) Why complain when we have all we need In Jesus. Amen. Listen, I know life's not easy. I know there's plenty of ups and downs. But if you came in here today thinking that the whole world is against you, that may be true. But the one who is for you has overcome the world. Friends, you don't have to leave here in that kind of broken state. Instead, don't forget the communion you have with God through Jesus, right? Don't forget the confession you have. To God through Jesus. Don't forget the community you have with God because of Jesus. Friends, you are not alone. We are better together. Stop whining. Here it is. You ready? No whining. Let's move on. Knowing that the one who is for us is greater than anything that could ever be against us.